0: Al Jazeera
1: Podcast. Thousands of asylum seekers in the UK may soon find themselves in Rwanda after a new treaty that could determine their futures. The first of its kind to ever be signed a 43-page internationally binding treaty between the UK and Rwandan governments to formalize the deportation of asylum seekers to Kigali. They've been in this situation before. The UK government has been trying to deport asylum seekers to Rwanda for a while. Last year, the Court of Appeals stopped them. Human rights lawyers like Kais Siddiqui had been working day and night to keep their clients from being expelled
0: we let out a huge sigh of relief and we were just so exhilarated in the sense that all the hard work that we had put in essentially paid off and we felt
1: vindicated. Then last month, the Supreme Court agreed with that ruling. But that wasn't the end of the story. The treaty was the government's response. And alongside it, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak proposed a bill. It allows his ministers to bypass sections of human rights law all in service of this plan. If you come here illegally, you will not be able to stay. You will be detained, and then you will be swiftly removed to your own country, if that's safe, or if it isn't, then a safe third-country alternative like Rwanda. So what are the chances for this to actually happen? And where does it leave asylum seekers in the UK? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Several human rights organizations have condemned the UK-Rwanda deportation plan. Amnesty International called it racist and disgraceful. But the UK government hopes to get migrants on planes to Rwanda by the spring, if the parliament approves. Qais Siddiqui has tried to make sure that doesn't happen. In addition to being a lawyer, he's also a former refugee himself. So, Reis, you have represented several immigration detainees who were facing the prospect of being forced to leave for Rwanda. You last spoke to us about it on The Take last year, and a lot has happened since then. So, let's take it to the latest news. How did you hear about the UK-Rwanda treaty?
0: I was expecting it in the back of my mind, but I was a bit concerned and shocked that Rishi Sunak, uh, the prime minister, would actually do that. But the way in which and the manner and the timing of, of his announcement did uh, shock me a bit.
1: So there have been reverberations since the news of this treaty, and we're going to talk about them in a bit. But I want to give the context for what we're talking about here. And that is that the Supreme Court struck down this deportation plan last month. They ruled that Rwanda wasn't a safe place to send migrants and that the plan would violate British and international human rights law. So then we get this treaty, which seems to be the government finding a way around that ruling. Is that how you see it? Can you tell us what is new about this treaty?
0: Well, one of the main aspects of the Supreme Court ruling was that the courts found unanimously that there was a risk of refoulement um, in with the Rwanda deal. Refoulement is essentially, in simple terms, means that asylum seekers in a country face removal to their country of origin, which that right is protected under international laws and uh, in our UK domestic laws as well.
1: Justices on the country's top court said that asylum seekers would be at real risk of ill treatment because they could be sent back to their home country.
0: So that was the main aspect of the supreme court ruling that that us practitioners were looking for and thankfully the supreme court ruled in favor of the applicants so i'm not sure how the prime minister and james cleverly our home secretary in the uk are going to essentially tackle that to show that rwanda is not going to breach this particular law i know that the prime minister has announced emergency legislation, but we cannot fathom how that's possible in such a short period of time to prove that Rwanda is a safe country for asylum seekers to be removed to, because we have uh, throughout the proceedings from the High Court to the Court of Appeal to the Supreme Court, we all we've seen from the UNHCR and other bodies, all we've seen is that they're saying Rwanda is not a safe country.
1: So in the past, you had represented people who were facing this expulsion to Rwanda. Are you still, or any of your clients, in this group?
0: Yes, we had two of them, actually. And both of them were on the plane on the 14th of June, 2022, when the first flight to Rwanda was going to be taking off. And then half an hour before the flight was going to be taking off, and that's when the European Court of Human Rights intervened, which prevented their removal. Our clients, we were on the plane, um, stressed. And once we broke the news to them, they were just overwhelmed with emotions. And, and, and they were very happy because they didn't have anybody in Rwanda. They were victims of torture and trafficking as well. So they had been through all of that, and to then be detained in immigration detention and be given this notice of intent for potential removal to Rwanda, further exacerbated their mental health because they couldn't even unpack the sort of emotional damage that they had experienced on their journey to the UK, uh, to then just be given this notice of intent. So it all came together and we all felt very emotional
1: After the break, what future awaits asylum seekers if their one-way trip to Rwanda actually happens? Welcome to Necessary Tomorrows. My name is Ursula, I am an AI, and I have inferred from your online activity that you have been feeling more dread than hope when you think about the future that is coming for us here in the 2060s. So I have created a course just for you to enhance your capacity for imagining different futures. Your class starts January 8th. Necessary Tomorrows, an audio series by Doha Debates and Al Jazeera. Find it where you listen to podcasts. So guys, take me up to speed with what we know as of the latest right before this interview. So a day before you and I sat down, we heard news that the immigration minister in the UK was stepping down over this policy. Immigration minister Robert Jenrick said he had resigned due to strong disagreements with the direction of the government's policy on immigration. Talk to me about what happened. Well,
0: your guess is as good as mine. It was a bit of a shock and surprise to all of us because it seemed like the Tories, the Conservatives, they didn't have their ducks in a row and it seemed that they were giving conflicting information and they couldn't even pull through or or hold on to something that they believed in themselves because 24 hours before he was perfectly fine with it and he was advocating for the treaty, saying that it was the correct approach and whatnot. But then 24 hours later, he resigned, saying that the approach wasn't enough. In his
1: resignation statement, he said... The stakes for the country are too high for us not to pursue the stronger protections required to end the merry-go-round of legal challenges, which risks paralyzing the scheme and negating its intended deterrent.
0: That's the whole point of this Rwanda policy, is to deter. But people fail to understand that since this policy has been announced last year, more people have come to the UK than before. So it's had the opposite effect.
1: So, guys, you mentioned that the aim of any of these policies that this U.K. government has put forward is said to be about deterring people from making the dangerous journey to Britain to claim asylum. We've heard from the British Home Secretary, James Cleverly just this week. If we don't address these issues, the people that will ultimately be the winners are the people smugglers, they are the slave traders. They are the criminal gangs and they are the extremist voices who always take advantage of human difficulties and hardship. When you hear that from your home secretary, what do you think? What goes through your mind?
0: Well, Malika, I deal with asylum claimants on a day-to-day basis, so I hear their stories I take instructions for their witness statements, so I understand their stories. And I've heard so many individuals, and I see a pattern where individuals who, before they arrive to the UK, when they're placed on a boat or a dinghy to come into the UK, they are forced by these human traffickers to get on the boat. Numerous individuals in the past have lost their lives in the channel. If they really want to assist and help these individuals reduce the number of deaths on the channel and to reduce human trafficking, they should create more safe legal routes for individuals to come to the UK rather than having to place their lives in the hands of a trafficker who only cares about the money and don't care about the person's life.
1: For Prime Minister Sunak's bill to become law, it still has to go through Parliament. So I asked guys, how likely that could be.
0: I wouldn't be surprised, to be honest, uh, if it passes. But again, we can only speculate at this point. And we won't know until the parliament actually considers the bill.
1: And let's talk about Rwanda, the other half of this. Do we know if Rwanda is actually capable of handling an influx of asylum seekers?
0: Well, they claim that they respect the asylum seekers' rise and they have a good record of migration into Rwanda. But the facts and the records that we hold speak differently about that because Rwanda does have a poor record of human rights and the refoulement element of cases where individuals, for, say for example, who arrive from Iran to Rwanda, they are removed to Iran after a while, even after they have been granted asylum. So that's something that the Supreme Court took into account. And that's very concerning, especially in light of the international laws and domestic laws speaking up against non refoulement so Rwanda is not safe in simple terms. Rwanda is not a safe country for asylum seekers to be sent to for their asylum case to be processed. Asylum seekers who are in Rwanda at the moment, they are not happy with the immigration system in place. For example, just on a practical level, there are certain languages or interpreters are not available. That's something that was brought up in the proceedings as well. People are going to face issues with accommodations. They're not allowed to work or anything like that. So they rely on the governments of the countries where they claim asylum to provide them with the basic necessities. And they have not done that.
1: Well, finally, guys, as an immigration lawyer, how is all of this going to impact your work with asylum seekers? Are you optimistic about the future of immigration in the UK?
0: That's a very good question. I believe that... I will continue to fight for them and I know that for a fact that I will not stop fighting for their rights because if individuals like myself and other practitioners, brilliant practitioners if they don't do anything for these asylum seekers then they're going to face severe difficulties and breaches of their rights uh, which shouldn't be the case. But in terms of the future if this is the way that the future is looking like it's not looking very bright to be honest.
1: For Kais, this is
0: personal. I'm a proud former refugee myself, and I understand them. I understand the way they're thinking, what they're going through on a different level that most practitioners can. So I try to assure them that I will do everything I can in my power to get them the outcome that they deserve and want, which is to get granted refugee status. But obviously I can't go over and beyond in my Assurances, and I can't guarantee uh, a positive outcome or anything like that, but I can guarantee that I will do everything I can and I will put up a good fight. And that usually puts them at ease because when I tell them about my story as a former refugee, my mother's story, then they are assured that they're in good hands, that they're in the hands of someone who has experienced what they're going through right now. To be in a refugee camp, to be in a foreign country, not knowing the language, uh, not having any family around... So that's how I relate to them and assure them that I will do everything I can to get them the outcome they deserve.
1: And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Sari Al-Khalili and Sonia Bagat with Chloe Kay Lee, Zaina Badr, Ashish Malhotra, David Enders, Faranisa Campana, Khalid Sultan, Miranda Lynn, Amy Walters, Nagin Auliai, and me, Malika Bilal. Our sound designer is Alex Roldan. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer. And Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back.